Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being at the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Calvary. It's good to uh, be with you. And uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I was talking with a friend of mine. I, he said, what are you doing for Father's Day? I said, I, you know, I don't know, probably not, not a whole lot. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to make my daughters watch the stream with me. So that was going to be his Father's Day present. So to you daughters out there that are being forced to watch this stream with your father, uh, it's good to have you. I feel your pain. I'm sorry. This is what it's come to. But in any case, it's good to have you here. Happy Father's Day to all of you. And uh, we have been, uh, throughout this year, moving through our sermon series, All Things New, The Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. But today, I want to take a break uh, from our sermon series, and I want to speak to the matter of race in light of all the turmoil that's gone on the past month or so uh, in our culture. And I'm very appreciative of Pastor Johnny, Pastor John, Pastor Eric, uh, what's already been shared by our pastoral team uh, on this. I think they've done uh, a fantastic job in the past weeks, but I was scheduled to be out of the pulpit the past three weeks, and uh, so I feel it's important as I re-engage with you all uh, as your senior pastor that I also address this topic. I think there's some more things uh, to be said here. There's lots of things to be said here. I'm under no illusion that I am going to be able to solve all of the problems or speak to every issue, uh, certainly not even this morning. But 
I didn't want to just simply jump back in to preaching, pick up the sermon series after three weeks of being gone and continue on in our sermon series as though nothing uh, significant has happened in our country. Uh, what's gone on in our country and it's been impacting our church as well. So I believe it's important for us to linger here, oh, excuse me, a little bit and to think carefully about these issues of race, culture, ethnicity, equality. Specifically, though, I, this is not, these are not going to be a political sermon. I, I want to think specifically as it relates to our congregation here at Calvary. So let me put this morning into a larger kind of four-part context to give you a sense of where we're going to be going uh, in the coming weeks. We're going to have uh, two sermons and two Calvary Talks that are going to be coming up uh, over the next three weeks. And this sermon this morning, we can consider part one of this kind of four-part approach. Today, I want to lay out Christianity's version of racial and ethnic unity that emerges out of the gospel. And I want to show how this notion of unity undercuts ethnic and racial privilege. And so for that, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, which Chris has already read for us this morning. And then next Sunday's sermon is going to be a part two to this four-pronged approach, in which I'm going to focus on an aspect of our gospel unity that I think is vital for us as a congregation. I think it's important, you know, for society at large, but my main focus here is for us as a congregation, and that's the importance of co-suffering with each other as we experience hurt and pain. So for that, we're going to draw from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then part three is going to be a Calvary Talk webinar that's going to take place next Sunday evening, and uh, we're intending, we're hoping to have uh, uh, that'll be 7 o'clock next Sunday evening. We're hoping to have uh, Dr. Greg Quiggle, who is a church historian from Moody Bible Institute. He's been to Calvary a number of times. Perhaps you've uh, been in some of his classes. But Dr. Quiggle uh, will walk us through the history of race in the Christian tradition in North America. So he's done a fair bit of work on how Christianity has kind of uh, worked itself out uh, uh, how race has sort of worked itself out in the Christian tradition in North America. And so we're going to be looking at that, uh, at that uh, Calvary talk. And then uh, part four of this four-pronged approach will be a second Calvary talk, another webinar that's going to take place Sunday evening, July 12th, again at 7 p.m. And that's going to be a panel discussion uh, that's going to uh, involve folks from our One Humble Voice group here at Calvary. So I think maybe this has been mentioned or you've heard of this, but One Humble Voice is kind of a, it's a sort of a task force think tank uh, sort of group of folks that uh, the elders have called together to help us think through issues of race and ethnicity here at Calvary. And so I'm going to have a panel with some of them. We're going to be hearing from some of them specifically uh, with a view to helping us understand how we as Calvary congregants should move forward in light of issues of race. So those are the uh, four uh, things that we're going to be doing here in the next uh, three weeks or so. Details for all these events are going to be uh, sent out via email. You'll get an email with some of this information. It's also going to be uh, on our Calvary website. So I encourage you uh, to make use of these. So to my Calvary congregants, uh, let me encourage you 
Yea, verily, let me exhort you uh, to prioritize these times and to let's come together with the spirit of love and just listening and learn uh, from each other on that. And my goal is not uh, to give you more ammunition for your social media wars on Facebook, but the goal for all of this is for us to be able to come together and love each other better. That's my heart uh, in this. And so I, uh, my prayer for our congregation throughout this season of unrest in our broader culture, in our broader country, is that we at Calvary would be able to set aside the political clamor and the swirl that's going on in our culture, it's going on in social media, and just for a moment, Let's think about these matters specifically in relation to our fellow congregants here at Calvary. I know that once the term uh, ethnic or white privilege gets introduced into the conversation, a lot of defenses go up. I want to just, if I could, I'd just gather you all together for a big group hug. Right, let's just have a big group hug as we enter into these conversations. We love each other. Let's learn how to love each other better in this, right? I don't think it works in parenting. It doesn't work in pastoring to stand up and at the furrowed brow and wag fingers at anybody. And that's not what I want to do this morning or in the coming weeks. I want us to learn how to love each other better. So let's drop uh, our defenses. Let's drop our uh, desire to self-protect. And let's just enter into a spirit of being able to listen to and love each other. And if you're not a member at Calvary, uh, maybe you're joining us uh, for the first time in our stream uh, this morning. I'm very glad uh, that you are here. And a lot of this, uh, these talks will be, will be geared towards our Calvary uh, audience, but we're certainly glad to have you participate and to listen in. Maybe you're not even a Christian. You're just interested in learning more about uh, what Christianity would have to say to the world and specifically to issues of race. We're very glad that you're here. And I trust that the Lord has a word for you too in the midst of all of this. So we're glad that you're here and ask you uh, to join in with us too. All right, so into our text this morning, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Our text this morning is a classic text on ethnic and racial unity. I was chatting with Pastor Eric this week, and uh, he pointed out that I've preached this text three times since he and Pam have been on staff. I only remember preaching it once or twice. And likely many of you, if I can't remember preaching it three times, you don't remember me preaching it at all. So yeah, in any case, here we are again on uh, this text. Truthfully, I'm in a hurry to get to next week's passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I even thought about skipping past Ephesians chapter 2 this week just to get to next week's passage. But this is such a foundational passage for understanding how the gospel unifies us across ethnic lines and how it undercuts ethnic and racial privilege. And I've decided it's too important of a passage for us to move past. I want to circle back here again. We're going to be picking up Paul's thought in the middle of Ephesians 2 at verse 11. Now, just prior to Ephesians 2 verse 11, Paul has been expounding the glorious truths of the gospel about how we are reconciled to God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice and his shed blood and through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That's all of Ephesians 1 and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It talks about how our vertical relationship with God is restored. 
humanity cut off from God, we are restored in our vertical relationship with God. That's the first half of chapter 1 and 2. Then Paul turns a corner in our passage this morning at chapter 2, verse 11, and he begins to work out the horizontal implications of how this restored vertical relationship comes to bear in the life of the Christian community. So in verse 2, chapter 11, he begins, he refers, but he says this, uh, he refers to his readers, so he's referring to his readers here as you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. So maybe you uh, have some, some sense of what that's about, but maybe you're new to the Christianity and you're not quite sure why Paul is all of a sudden talking to his readers as you Gentiles in the flesh, you, those that are called the circumcision, uncircumcision. What's this all about? Well, Paul is writing as a devout Jewish man, and he is writing to Gentile or to non-Jewish converts to Christianity. So when Christianity comes upon the scene in the first century, many of the converts to Christianity, to Christ, are Jewish, and many of the converts to Christianity are not Jewish. And so Paul comes from the Jewish side of the church, and he is writing as a Jewish apostle to some of the Gentile converts in Christianity. And it's going to be important here to understand the dynamics of first century Jew-Gentile relations to make sense of what he's talking about here in the passage this morning. The Jewish people began, they have their origins, just like every other group of ancient people. They were pagan wanderers on the earth, just like every other group of pagan wanderers on the earth. But then God shows up, he steps in, and he chooses them for himself, and he tells them that through them, he is going to bring deliverance to all the peoples of the earth. But that this is going to take some time to get to the place where this deliverance will come. So until that time comes, God gives a law through the prophet Moses that is to govern the people while this promise is getting ready to come true. So this is where we are in our sermon series that we've been on since January. We've gotten to the age of the law. One of the things that we haven't spent time on yet in our sermon series, as we've emphasized the law, is how the law separated the Jew from the Gentile. On this point, the law could be summed up as follows to the Jewish person. Don't eat what Gentiles eat. Don't worship what they worship. Don't practice the same religious rituals. Don't intermarry with them. In other words, keep them at arm's length. So the Jews, one people group within all the people groups of the world, they're the covenant community. They have the law, but all the other people groups of the world are considered Gentiles or outsiders. So the Jews are supposed to only fraternize, as it were, with their fellow Jews. They're to keep themselves at arm's length from the Gentiles. And the basic logic of the law given to the Jewish people with respect to the Gentiles was that if you hang out with pagan idolaters, you're going to become pagan idolaters. I mean, this is like the logic of parents, right? You know, the kids that your friends are, the, the friends that your kids hang out with, you're worried that they're going to become like uh, those kids, right? So it's the same basic, basic logic that God is using. So by the time we get to Paul's day, when he's writing here in Ephesians chapter 2, 
For centuries, indeed for more than a millennium, the Jewish people had learned to keep themselves separate from the Gentile world. But then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he atones for sin through his death, and he unleashes the Spirit of God upon the people through his resurrection. And in a second, everything has changed. The temple veil is torn in two, and suddenly all the old rules about no fraternizing between Jew and Gentile become void. Like that. The life of humanity that had been lost in Eden, God's life, God's own very life that humanity had lost, had rushed back into the lungs of humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. And the need for the law, separation between Jew and Gentile, was gone. And that's the point that Paul is making here in chapter 2, 11 through 22. The Gentiles, verse 12, who used to be separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, these Gentiles who were without God and without hope in the world, were, verse 13, brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, brought near to what? Brought near to who? Brought near to the Jewish people and the covenant promises that God had given to the Jewish people. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ not only reestablished the relationship between God and humanity, but it also reestablished the relationship between Jew and Gentile. It reunited the peoples of the earth. This half of chapter 2 is not about peace with God, between God, peace between God and humans. If you kind of read through it real fast and you talk about how Christ's blood removes the hostility, the enmity, and abolishes the, the law and the ordinances that stood against all of that, you could just read through it quickly and think Paul is talking about Jesus reestablishing peace between humanity and God. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about how Jesus' blood has reestablished unity between Jew and Gentile. Jesus, through his sacrifice, became the peace between Jew and Gentile. It's verse 14. Because he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. When Christ made his atoning sacrifice, it removed the dividing wall that separated Jew from Gentile. So verse 15, Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that had separated Jew and Gentile since the days of Moses. So verse 17, Jesus preached peace to those who were far off, meaning the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, meaning the Jews. But then look what Paul says in verse 15. Christ has created in himself one new man in the place of two. Who are the two? The two are the Jew and the Gentile. Christ has created in himself, in his own person, he has created one new man. He has taken the two and he has made them one. But I wanted to pay particular attention to this word in verse 15. It's an important word. This word, new one new man. This one man that Jesus has created is a new man. This new man is more than just unity between Jew and Gentile. It's a new kind of unity between Jew and Gentile. The law already had provisions for unity 
between Jew and Gentile. So the, the idea of Jew and Gentile become un, becoming united is not a new concept necessarily because there was already provisions for that under the law. Under the law, Gentiles who wanted to worship the Jewish God could enter into union with the Jewish community provided that they were willing to become Jews and adopt Jewish customs and Jewish rituals. So Jewish Gentile unity was possible under the law, but only under Jewish terms. But Christ has come and he's created a new man, a new kind of unity. He created a whole new reality wherein Gentiles no longer need to become Jews in order to worship the Jewish God. Through Jesus, everyone, regardless of their ethnicity, could now come to God through Christ. The only criteria for entering into this new man was faith in Jesus, which meant that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, now had equal access to God. Jews were no longer privileged for being Jews, and Gentiles were no longer disadvantaged for being Gentiles. This one new man that Jesus had created and that Paul was preaching about and writing about here in Ephesians chapter 2, now listen to this, was enormously controversial. Enormously controversial in the Jewish communities of Paul's day and the Jewish communities of Paul's day afterwards. Everywhere that Paul went, and Paul in particular, this was, I mean, all the New Testament is this same message, but Paul in particular, his ministry was about making this point. Everywhere that Paul went to preach this gospel of this one new man, he split Jewish communities wherever he preached it. So you can read through the book of Acts. I mean, Paul is always running into problems in the book of Acts. He's running into problems from the Jews from his fellow Jews, and he's run into problems from pagans. There's different reasons for both of those. But when it comes to the problems that he's running into from his fellow Jews, it's on this point right here. So he goes into a synagogue. He preaches that Jesus is the Messiah, and they were willing to listen to that. But as soon as he said that because Jesus is the Messiah, there's one new man, and there is therefore no ethnic privilege, he got all sorts of pushback, and he got himself ultimately beheaded because he insisted on that point. So what was so controversial in his message? Why was his message so divisive within the Jewish communities? After all, Jesus was a Jewish man and Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Why was he so divisive then as an idea within the Jewish communities? Paul's message was so controversial with his fellow Jews because his message, and really the whole message of Jesus and then the New Testament, essentially displaced ethnic, the ethnic privilege of the Jews. This is why Paul had so much pushback from his fellow Jews. Because the message of the gospel displaced the ethnic privilege of the Jews. If access to God was no longer through the Jewish law, and it wasn't because now it was faith in Christ. You could do an end around the Jewish law if you were a Gentile. Because access to God was no longer through the Jewish law, that meant that the Jews as Jews no longer had a monopoly on humanity's access to God. 
prior to Jesus, if the rest of the world wanted to worship the Jewish God, they had to come in through Judaism. But after Jesus, you don't have to come in through Judaism anymore. Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, displaced the Jewish ethnic religious privilege. If a Gentile could get to God without going through the law, that meant the Gentiles could get to God without submitting themselves to Judaism. And that meant that the Jewish people no longer had a privileged vantage point from which to relate to God. And it also meant that the Jewish people were no longer in the power position with respect to Gentile converts. For many religiously devout Jews, the gospel that Paul preached, that Jesus came and embodied, and that Paul in the New Testament preached, it seemed to upend the whole point of the law that God had given to the prophet Moses. And the law was the the center of their devotion to God. And so they expressed their opposition to Paul's gospel on religious theological grounds. But many of them, what many of them were really concerned about What Jesus' opponents were really concerned about, what Paul's opponents were really concerned about, was that Paul's gospel equalized the playing field between Jew and Gentile, and it swept away their Jewish ethnic privilege. To embrace Christ as Messiah meant giving up their Jewish privilege. It meant giving up their position of power. Many devout Jews happily did so happily and humbly received Christ as their Messiah. And indeed, the entire beginning of the church was almost entirely Jewish. But many of the, uh, of the first century Jews refused to embrace Christ as Messiah, most especially those in the power positions within the Jewish communities. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the synagogue leaders, the scribes, all of these resisted Christ as the Jewish Messiah. And even the apostles, even the apostles struggled to come to terms with this reality. It's what the whole first church council is about in Acts 15. They understood that Jesus was the one to whom the law pointed, and they understood that all of us had to come to God through Jesus, but they thought that the way you got to Jesus was through the law. So there's a big debate that went on, and Paul insisted that, no, you get to Jesus through faith, not through the law. And so there was this big debate, and eventually at this Acts 15 council, the whole church came together, and the apostles rendered judgment that Paul's gospel was, in fact, the right gospel, and that Gentiles do not need to come to God or to Jesus through the Jewish law, but can come to God through Jesus directly by faith. That was a pivotal moment in the life of the early church. If you want to understand all the Jewish hostility that Jesus and his disciples faced throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts, this issue of Jewish privilege vis-a-vis the Gentiles lies at the very heart of it. This is not a side story, and I'm not trying to put something in here to have it apply to our current context. This is the story of all the conflict in the Gospels and in the New Testament. Okay, now, we are not Calvary. We are not a church that struggles with Jewish ethnic privilege. I'm not, I don't, there might be some in our congregation that have a Jewish ethnicity, but I'm not aware that that is the case, right? So we don't struggle with Jewish ethnic privilege. But that doesn't mean that this passage has nothing to say to us. So here's 
The twofold principle that I want to draw from this, and then I want to kind of unpack this a little bit as it relates to our life here at Calvary. The gospel of Jesus Christ erases ethnic privilege. The gospel of Jesus Christ erases ethnic privilege. And second part, kind of second part of this principle, the more power that one gains from ethnic privilege, the more tightly one is tempted to hold on to it. The more power that one gains from ethnic privilege, the more tightly one is tempted to hold on to it. All right, so what are these lessons, these principles from the first century Jew-Gentile relations mean for us today here at Calvary? Well, if first century Jewish privilege was set aside by the gospel because of this one new man of Christ, then how much more is modern white privilege set aside in Christ? My point is not that white privilege should be set aside. My point, rather, is it is set aside in Christ. I mean, who determines, just think about this now more broadly, kind of in the world systems, who determines which ethnicities or races are privileged in an earthly kingdom or structure? Who makes that determination? Well, the ones in the position of power make that determination, right? That's how it works in the world. And we as Christians, we can't necessarily just step into the world and change all of that, right? It, it, it depends on what our power position is in respect to the world, right? But in the kingdom of Christ, who determines which ethnicities are privileged? Well, it's, it's really actually the same. The one in the position of power makes that determination, and Christ is the one in the position of power. He is the king, and he has determined which ethnicities are privileged, and Jesus has determined that no ethnicities are privileged in his kingdom. We all come to him equally through faith. So there may be white privilege in our wider culture, but it has no justifiable place in the Christian community. Whatever you think about white privilege, maybe you're doubtful it exists in the broader American culture. Our non-white brothers and sisters at Calvary know that it exists. But whatever you think about it, let's all agree as a matter of gospel import that when it comes to our relationship with God and to each other here at Calvary, no one ethnicity has a leg up over another. Of course, none of us would say that one ethnicity or race is better than another. At least we would not say it out loud. But let me speak a moment to my white brothers and sisters here at Calvary. Just as Jewish privilege was a temptation to the apostles, I mean, it took them a while to like disentangle themselves from that. And they were, they, like, they were good-hearted and good-spirited and trying to follow the Lord, right? It took them a while to disentangle themselves from their Jewish privilege. In the same way, in the same way white privilege can be a temptation to white Christians. White Christians in North America have, for nearly 400 years, established the structures and made the rules by which Christianity expresses itself in North America. So it's inevitable that white Christians, having constructed this particular version of Christianity that we call white American Christianity, will be tempted to view our particular kind of Christianity as normative and, if we're honest, as the apex and the best kind of Christian expression for everyone. 
And too often, as white Christians, we've been quite happy to have Gentile outsiders come and join us in our churches just as long as they worship God in our way, adopt our customs, and adhere to our practices. But listen, you all, we are all Gentiles. We are all outsiders, both literally and metaphorically. Literally, we are a church of Gentiles. Again, I'm not sure that we have any Jewish ethnicity in our congregation. Maybe we do. But we are predominantly a church of literal Gentiles. But we are also metaphorically Gentiles. We are all began on the outside. We all began separated from Christ and strangers to the covenant promises without God and without hope in this world. We all, all of us, regardless of our ethnicity, we stand with our hats in our hands at the foot of the cross. That's how all of us come to Christ. And that's the very thing that Paul's fellow Jews forgot. They forgot that they too were just Gentiles by another name. They were no different in their ontology, in their being. They were no different than the class of Gentiles that, was, that they thought themselves separated from. They needed the salvation of Jesus that, that Jesus brought to the world just as much as the Gentile pagans did. This one new man Jesus is making is not a Jewish man, even though Jesus himself incarnated as a Jewish man. I mean, think about that. The Son of God incarnated as a Jewish man, and not even Judaism is represented explicitly and fully as the one new man. How much less then is this one new man that Jesus has made a one new white man? It's not. God forgive all of us white Christians if we make the same mistake as the first century Jews of Paul's day, viewing our our white ethnicity and our white culture as the preferential vantage point by which other ethnicities and cultures should have access to God. And God forgive us for the times that we have been slow to release our grip on the reins of power, cloaking our resistance in religious terms, while all the while we are really trying to hold on to our position of privilege. White privilege is a real thing in our current broader culture, but it's not a thing in the one new man that Christ has created, and it should not be a thing here at Calvary. Not because whiteness is any better or worse than any other ethnicity, but precisely because Christ himself is the unification of every ethnicity and race and culture. Listen, I am not a white culture hater. If you look closely, you will discern that I am actually white. White American culture has its warts, to be sure. And we're seeing that now uh, in full relief here in the news. It's been present all throughout our history. White American culture has its warts, to be sure. But here's the thing. White American culture is going to be redeemed And it too will become part of the kingdom of God. Right along with black American culture and Chinese culture and Indian culture and Nigerian and Mexican and German and every other kind of culture. The gospel doesn't erase racial and ethnic diversity. 
The gospel erases racial and ethnic privilege. The glory of this one new man is not that we have become monolithic and raceless in Christ, as though we've become disembodied souls floating into heaven, stripped of our ethnicity. The glory of this one new man in Christ is that we all, all of us together, become a mosaic of beauty precisely because in Christ, our ethnicity is retained and redeemed. Revelation 21 holds out a vision of the coming cosmic redemption. Right at the end of the Bible, God is, it's the chapter where we get this expression, all things new, God is making all things new. And we get a vision of this cosmic renewal that God is making. And in this vision, the kings of the earth bring into the kingdom of Christ the glory and honor of their nations in all of their ethnic and culture, cultural and racial diversity. And that's what makes the kingdom of God so beautiful. All this diversity redeemed in Christ, brought together in harmony around the person of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the kingdom of God so beautiful. That's what makes Calvary so beautiful. And God help us, more of that will make us even more beautiful. We've still got work to do as a congregation. I don't pretend to think that we've figured this out. We need to keep learning about what it means to love each other and to value each other and to defer to each other. I don't think we're terrible at this. I've been so encouraged and I would commend this. I, this isn't just a compliment to me. This is a compliment to all of us. I've been so encouraged and you should be too from what I've heard from our African-American brothers and sisters these past weeks about how proud they are of Calvary and how glad they are to be part of this church during this time of upheaval. I don't know that all of our uh, brothers and sisters of color feel that exact same way, but I know that many do, and that's a testimony to the graciousness of our congregation, that we are all pulling together in unity with each other. But we need to keep pressing into the unity that Christ has purchased for us at the cost of his own blood. His blood was not shed just to bring us back to God. It was shed to reunite all peoples in him and in that union to bring us all together to God. Let's take for just a moment here, for just this season, let's lay aside all the political rhetoric. Let's leave off trying to save our country with our particular solutions to the problems on social media. All of that has a place, can be important, but let's focus right here, right here in our congregation, in our church. Listen, we love each other. We do love each other. Let's not let our culture's spirit of divisiveness enter into this community and divide us from each other. God has called us to love each other, to put each other first, to care for one another. God will give us grace for that. Christ will give us grace for that. He has given us grace for that, and he will continue to give us grace for that as we look to him. I close with the reading here, verse 19. Turn there or look there in your Bibles if you have it. What Paul says to his Ephesians readers, he says to all of us, that all of us are no longer strangers and aliens, but all of us have become fellow citizens with each other 
We have become fellow citizens and members of God's household. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone that makes all of this union possible. And in uniting us to himself and to each other, he brings us back to God so that we can all be built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's keep leaning into our love for each other. Let's keep praying for each other. Let's keep, let's keep prioritizing each other and putting each other first and being willing to listen and to grow and to hear from each other. And by God's grace, we will be built up by His Spirit into a house that honors and glorifies Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us Christ not only to sort out our relationship with you, which is where it all starts, but that in that sorting out, you have now paved the way for us to be reunited to each other. And uh, God, I pray specifically for our folks here at Calvary. Lord, I'm jealous for us as a congregation to love each other, to care for each other, to not allow our politics or, or our vision of social engagement to trump our capacity to love each other. Help us to listen to each other, to hear from each other. Help us to listen to you and your spirit and what you have for us, God. Guide us in these next number of weeks as we continue to talk about these things. But I pray, Lord, beyond that, that you would guide us as a congregation uh, from now until uh, your son returns to grow in our capacity to love each other. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.